it's Betsy with the Dickey Foundation, and you're listening to Dickey's Doing Good, where we tell good stories about good people doing good things in our community. Today, you're listening to the second part of my interview with Sergeant Josh Hertel with the Dallas Police Department. Josh has been with the department more than 20 years and is currently stationed at Love Field, where he supervises a number of officers and the explosive detection canines. He's also a board member for Assist the Officer and the Dallas Police Association. You know, talking about the teams and, and your involvement, um, you were involved in that tragic shooting we had here in Dallas, July 7th, 2016, mm-hmm. um, and, and bringing bringing that to a, a close with 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 without more deaths and more tragedy than already happened. Can you tell me about that night? Sure. Um... I'll say that I just spoke about this at a resiliency conference, but for another piece of it, basically where we were as a department and where we are now, but uh, after the fact. Um, so I know there's people have probably heard a lot of stories. There, there's a book out on it. I've heard somebody's wanting to make a movie on it. So there's a and there's also been a lot of people give uh, some form of a debrief on it. Right. Mm-hmm. So anything I say is, is what I can attest to that night that I saw and, uh, and that's all I can really attest to. That day started out, uh, as as most people know, and I'll be very brief on that piece, but the, the national narrative toward law enforcement was very negative at that time, right? Mm-hmm. From about 2014 to, to then about 2016, we suffered quite a bit, uh, uh, just rhetoric, just, you know, whether it was to some uh, deserving and to others not, but it took a toll on the police officer, the law enforcement officer, their family, um, anyone else that was directly involved with it. So we were already kind of at an all time low. I went back to SWAT in 2015 as a supervisor. So I was there actually the first, the first day of the state fair of Texas was my first day back. Um, and, uh, so I'd been there for almost a year, I guess, as a supervisor at, at the time of that incident. But, uh, there was not much support. The main push in Dallas was going to be your violent crime task force. So. And of course, nobody gets it, but the person involved in it, right? No matter where you're at, whether it be on a SWAT team or whether you be in patrol or whether you be in any organization or business, there's always gonna be every, we as the worker bees have a different agenda as the individuals above us that are wanting to push a different agenda and involve you in it. And most of the time it it doesn't really work toward toward your benefit. But the biggest push in Dallas at the time was going to be violent crime, right? So we were coming off a turn where we were told pretty much all of our SWAT stuff was to be done off off duty and be done on our time. Violent Crime Task Force was, was the primary concern, and that's exactly what we did. We had a lot of days that were very, very long. Um, that, that day started off with us at the range, I think at like 9.30 or 10 in the morning, and I remember it being damn near 100 degrees at 9 or 10 in the morning on that yeah, day. Yeah, July 7th in Dallas is, is a hot one there. Correct. So we, we were out there qualifying. And uh, that shooting, uh, I don't remember the exact timeline of everything taking place, but it was just before 9 p.m., but people had been at work all day. Mm-hmm. So we, we'd already been at work all day, and our violent crime task force was supposed to be the primary concern for that evening. So we'd already come in, qualified, did whatever little bit of training we needed to do, and then on to the next deal. That had been a planned protest uh, for quite some time, I guess, and there was no intel that was really violent other than there was uh, groups that were starting to integrate themselves into the peaceful protesters to create more of a rowdiness. Um, and they were, and they were open carrying, they were, they were openly carrying weapons, which that particular scared, night, yeah. scared, a, scared a number of folks. Correct. That night. Yeah. There was one, one individual, there's photos all over the internet of that individual. Uh, but so 
typical night, so I was getting ready to go check on uh, my squad, and I was talking to the lieutenant at the time and uh, listening to the radio traffic downtown, but listening to our channel as well. And uh, all of a sudden, you hear just the chaos erupt, right? So anyway, long story short, moving forward, we uh, we push down there and um, uh, finally make our way into the El Centro College, and then that event unfolds. My role that night was I was one of the team leaders in that building that night, um, one of the original ones that, that were in there to go ahead and start facilitating and try and figure out what exactly our next step was going to be to calm the situation, to either get this guy to either give up or or how so we like like uh, like any other operation. There's it's multifaceted, uh, it's multi-directional. Right. This guy is already up to that point, to our knowledge. Didn't know of the deaths quite yet. I didn't. Uh, that was not particularly my concern. I know he'd shot five five officers, and he'd shot at least uh, five officers up to that point. Uh, one of them, which I directly knew that he had uh, shot, uh, because uh, that, that was Mike Smith, and uh, we pulled him off the street when I got down there. I got down there with uh, uh, JT and um, Jason Perez, and then we had uh, we ended up picking up Joe Guzman, Mark Michaels. But uh, we ended up pushing down there. They were trying to hold direct fire to find this guy because the the reports were totally. They were just there were so many different reports. There was a report of another group at the Omni and so on. I mean, There's so many different reports. Of the guy being in the parking garage and we're at El Centro thinking, where's the parking garage? But you can see all the the carnage that's been created. But anyway, in lieu of us driving around trying to draw fire from this individual or at least seek a point where we could see him from a high point before we dropped into the college, uh, we ended up finding Mike Smith with his rookie out there on, on the street, got them on the APC, and later on took him down to Houston Street where we handed him off to Roger Rudolph and his group. And uh, they ended up putting him on an ambulance. And uh, I think later he's, he should come to his injuries. Um, I didn't know what his injuries were at the time, Guzman had checked him and he just had a little trickle of blood, a little speck of blood, but uh, they checked him real good and put him on the ambulance and uh, later on had found his light body armor in the APC before he dropped off and you could see where he had been shot through that. So Mike is the only person that I knew at the time that had any, that I had any direct contact with that knew that, hey, at least I knew uh, he had shot at least one individual. To what extent his injuries were, we, we didn't know at the time. We were hopeful and, uh, and then we moved on. So Later on, was dropped off there, went upstairs, met with some of the guys, I guess, uh, moments, probably just a little while after they had direct contact with him with, with direct fire, uh, not knowing all that. But, uh, you know, we sat up there and devised a plan. And like any other operation, you come up with a, uh, come up with many techniques. You come up with every strategy you possibly can to win the situation regardless, right? You, you, you look for the worst and start prepping it with negotiations on the backside to see what would happen. But in the meantime, uh, we're in a college. We're trying to get a map of this place. We know that he's kind of pinned down in that corner as far as we know. That's his last point of contact, and uh, no one else had seen him move since. You know, there was only so far he could push up in the library to get up to that point. So it it was a very uh, chaotic, would, would, would not do it justice, uh, just the situation itself, but the uh, 
operational piece was was as, as calm as calm could be right it's like the duck on top of the water underneath the water those feet were moving a million miles a minute that would be the situation well and it's really interesting because people think of law enforcement you know have lots of rules and regulations and everything but it sounds like you all have to be really creative thinkers and be creative and come up with with, with what you can do in this current situation really thinking on your feet on this right and i guess that's where the filtration of everything is so it's uh, the operational makeup was was as, as smooth as smooth could be with the different ideas being envisioned and and being brought out and just, you know, hey, how about this? Well, no, we can't do that because we need to factor in, you know, uh, if we have an errant round, go to it in, in a different direction. You know, there is a lot of ideas to stop the situation. Um, it was just uh, it was just a constant barrage back and forth like, hey, how about this? How about this? How about this? And then eventually it was brought forth. Uh, Jeremy and Scott had brought it to me and just said, "Hey, uh, what if we, what if we take the robot and put some explosives on it and take it down there to them?" And I was like, "What?" You know, and I was like, "Well, how much explosives are you thinking?" And they're like, "Well, about a pound." And I was like, "That's was a like, lot." I was like, "Oh my god!" Well, we're, we're we're used to dealing in breaching, and a pound of explosive in an enclosed hallway is is uh, that's a lot of overpressure. There's a lot of damage that's going to be caused. So I had to kind of wrap my brain around that for a minute. They kind of had to pause me and talk me into that one. But at the end of the day, the whole idea was, hey, okay, well, we'll figure out something. Get with, I had him call a a guy from Garland at the time, kind of run that by him. And, uh, and so that's what we did. And so just go ahead and start prepping it. And I'll, so why, why so much explosive? I mean, you all are used to dealing with much smaller amount. Why, right. So, (laughs) well, I think the whole, concept and idea is to overpower somebody right i think people think if you put a pound of explosive on somebody you're looking to tear them apart when really in reality the the actual uh my terminology is not going to be correct so i'm not even going to use it but we're at the point of detonation is where you have the most fire right but the explosive itself creates a, a lot of overpressure that comes off that overpressure is when you overstimulate the atmosphere with more pressure than it can handle, right? And so as a breacher, and I'm sure as an EOD tech, I don't know, I'm not one, but as any individual that operates around explosives, you kind of have to figure out what type of overpressure you're dealing with because your body has a threshold for, for different things, right? Your ears, you know, are roughly four to five PSI, right? You don't want to rupture your eardrums while you're in here. And, and, and it just goes on from there, you know, the threshold of your of your organs, your lungs, your this, that, and the other just keeps going on and on and on and on as you go and and to overwhelm an individual. And so in my idea, in my mind, the concept, when I, when they told me, I was like, well, first I was like, how ingenious, you know, who the hell came up with this idea? (laughs) Because this is ingenious. And the second was like, okay, well, all right. So the overpressure is going to overtake this individual. And that's the way I kind of foresaw it. Um, It wasn't like driving the robot up onto the guy and like hoping to tear him into pieces, but it was, hey, this will at least, if not, stop him completely we'll kind of we'll, we'll end this to where we can go over there and at least get a hold of this individual so i mean so like people who watch the tv i mean i know what you do is not necessarily like tv but you see someone like throw a flashbang and it disorients people and mm-hmm. but but that's not doing it over necessarily the overpressure that you're talking right about. so a flashbang is the whole point of the flashbang is uh you know it, it it deafens you and it blinds you so that's the whole thing it takes out to your main main senses your vision and your hearing uh totally disorients your system you know it gets people it it keeps them from completing their OODA loop so to observe uh decide orient act uh they're they're not able to complete this process right Mm -hmm. so that's what 
purposes are for different distractionary devices is to keep people from collapsing and finishing their thought process. Oh, again, I think I start back over here. I just observed. Now I have to reorient, decide, and I'm going to have to act. Oh, no, I'm going to have to do this. And, and a lot of the stuff we do is based on human psyche, right? So mm-hmm. uh, we're all human beings at the end of the day. You can be the most evilest piece of crud on the earth and not give a damn about even your mother, but you, you're still a human being. You still operate the same way your brain still functions in pretty much the same pattern as everybody else so whereas the explosive you know the overpressure is something we've always worked against well we're utilizing that to our advantage in my opinion i never asked them if that was exactly what they were intending to do but in my mind i saw it as an opportunity and was like okay great so we'll get this approved you know to start building it you know We'll figure out a way to, to tuck away and you just didn't want to give up too much ground on this guy. So anyway, uh, we uh, we end up I ended up going downstairs running into an ATF guy that I know uh, who had been very good to us. And then just so happened that there was another ATF bomb tech there, both very uh, prior military, very, very skilled EOD and very respected individuals. Convenient that they were nearby. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's almost like God just handed this to me. And uh, started running that by them, like, hey, this is what we're thinking about doing. What do you think? Back and forth. Uh, he's trying to tell me on the street, and I said, I can't have you down here. You're going to have to come up there with me. He's like, you want me to go upstairs? I said, yeah, I want you both to come upstairs. I need you to come upstairs and help us with this. Uh, okay. So, and that's another thing I think a lot of people don't realize is we had a lot of different agencies help us with this. You know, the FBI, they're, uh, they're, they're well, it would be the equivalent to their SWAT team, their regional SWAT team had been there very early on to provide help, you know. Uh, as a matter of fact, they were one of the first ones I asked for a robot, and they brought us what we call a point man, a small robot. And I was like, well, no, that's not the one I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about this big old arm that comes out. I need this, <laughs> that, and They're like, well, that's gonna that's gonna take a minute. But lo and behold, our EOD unit had had arrived and and uh, had had the had that type of equipment with them. So well, we, I think I think people think that there's got to be some turf wars between federal and state and local and things like that. But it sounds like you know when. When it really hits the fan, everyone's like, no, we're, we're here. Yeah, this is you. a very unique situation, you know, and I spoke about this the other day, totally not related to this at all, not even getting into all the operational pieces of it. Just, you know, no one's prepared to lose five officers. No one's prepared to lose five, five anybody, anything. And it's very critical in a sense, you know, it, it it's, it's a critical incident that became a crisis, right? It's a crisis because we're human beings. Like, oh, my God, I can't believe this just took place. But... Up to that point, and I think still to this day, uh, besides 9-11, that, that was the most law enforcement officers lost in the line of duty in one in one day, mm-hmm. and, uh, with the exception of 9-11. So no one's prepared for all that. But again, um, I was not able to keep tabs on that. I'm sure somebody else was. Our main concern was, hey, we cannot let this guy move any further, and uh, we need to keep this isolated to right here, control it from this event, and this is all only place that we can be, right? So eventually we ended up getting a uh, map of the location uh, from some of the uh, El Centro officers, the Dallas County officers, uh, very, very helpful. But yes, to answer your question, um, you know, we, we worked directly with them for quite some time, especially on a lot of their uh, warrants. When they would need to have warrants served, we would help them out. Um, they've helped us out. So it, we're just very, is very beneficial that yes, I think in perspective, I think there's always 
some somewhere somewhere along the way someone always has a turf war with somebody whether it be the county and the city or or the federal and the city or whoever it may be but for that night and that purpose all intents and purpose i think everybody understood there was one goal and one mission and that was to not let any more of this take place for the rest of the night to go ahead and stop that event right there and so we were very fortunate that we had all that help out there and that and just the uh, willingness of uh of the men and women there that uh, regardless whether they're in the building or outside wherever they are and whatever role they played in that that event that night um everybody from that day forward actually along with the investigations you know everybody played such a critical role in that <clears throat> and there was a lot of uh there had to be a lot of work and effort between multi-agencies in order to make that happen so but yeah so we we ended up uh ending Ending that, the individual did not want to give up. Uh, we had uh, the idea that he had mentioned stuff about explosives and whatnot on this person. Uh, we knew that uh, he was armed. We knew he was injured. We knew he was still there because he never quit talking. Uh, our negotiators did an excellent job that night. Um, and uh, yeah, so that event unfolded the way it did. I think everybody knows that. And, uh, and that was that piece of history that became history you know it's the first law enforcement agency to utilize a, a you know an unmanned vehicle to <laughs> to uh to uh, stop a threat you know to use lethal force on an individual you know up to that point it hadn't it had never been done as a matter of fact the legislation this last time had mentioned stuff in there about drones mm -hmm. unmanned drones and robots that was actually mentioned in there you know but uh and the Dallas incident was directly mentioned for that legislation piece for the House bills. But well, and we do see see more agencies requesting drones or requesting robots and things like that, because it does help keep officers out of harm's way. You're there. But as your point with overpressure, there's a, there's a limit to how far it goes. And so being able to be back to a, sa a safe point or being in a, in a vehicle or something like that, um, it, it's, it does make sense. Yeah, for something of that nature, yes. And we, we had a robot that we actually got from the ATF, and we dubbed him Johnny Five. And uh, unfortunately, when they went to get Johnny Five that night, Johnny Five did not want to get on that truck. So there was an issue with the robot, and uh, we just kind of joke and say, Johnny Five had been through enough. We used him for breaching quite a bit. <laughs> had several guys that were very well versed on that vehicle, that particular Andros, in the, and they were well versed in driving that thing. They were they were mechanical wizards when it came to getting that thing to run. But for that day, they were like, hey, Johnny Five, just there was there was something wrong with him. I don't remember what it was, but the big joke was Johnny Five just said, no, I've had enough. He's Johnny like, Five called not, in that night. Yeah, you're not putting me to death. Johnny Five. Yeah. So. Oh, well, I'm glad you all have one of those. And hopefully Johnny Five will get back out there. <laughs> um, so I've, I've got to ask, kind of, because you were, you were at El Centro and obviously you're here in Dallas and around. Does it do you think about it when you drive past El Centro? It, when, I've when, driven past El Centro probably maybe two or three times. Um, I've never been back in that building, not because I don't want to, just because I, I haven't had time to. Uh, and uh, the, the only thing I think about that night, obviously I think about the officers. I think about them all the time and, uh, and, and just wish there was another way. We had some bouts with some administrative stuff. I'm not going to get into that piece on your show. but uh, <laughs> Thanks. Um, that was very disheartening to me, especially as a supervisor and as an individual who was supposed to be a leader. And uh, it, 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 it hurts to, to know some of those things and some of those pieces 
Uh, not that it would have changed anything, but like me and any other of these guys, and I'm sure anybody else in our department or any other department wishes they were there that night to help uh, prevent this from unfolding the way it did. You know, this not only affected police officers, it affected a lot of people. There's a lot of civilians that got hurt out of this, and there's a lot of people that are probably traumatized out of this whole entire event. You know, that had nothing to do with this, uh, this whole entire event. And, uh, but yeah, they're just, there's a, I think there's a piece of all of us that kind of wish, hey, I wish we were there. Uh, since then, of course, we take different measures as far as when it comes to protests and how we react to them, um, how we have our, our uh, just how, how we have everything set up to respond to them. You know, in the event of we may need somebody, we have somebody there. And actually from the, that, that next day forward, that's exactly how we did it. We, we implemented a new, a new fashion of managing that piece and made sure that it was very well aware. And there was never a question and nothing balked out again about it. Like, no, nope, if you guys need that, that's exactly what you'll do. And, uh, but it's unfortunate that it took an event like that. But again, you know, this is, this is speaking in past tense and, you know, no one has a magic ball to go back and look at or otherwise I don't think anybody would want any of that to happen regardless of who they are or what they have going on. So, well, so to, to kind of to change gears a little bit, I know you said the best thing about being in law enforcement really is the brotherhood and the people. Mm-hmm. What do you find to be the most misunderstood thing about being in law enforcement? I think, you know, and I can't speak on behalf of everybody. I just know what uh, and people know right now, the national narrative. Of course, it's it's died off again. It comes in phases. You know, it died shortly thereafter. We had the two Louisiana officers die after uh after July 7th, I don't remember the exact date of that, but it was within a week or two of that. And uh, that national narrative of uh, police officers are garbage, you know, it quit because people were like, hey, this is dumb. You guys are killing these guys for no reason whatsoever, these guys and gals. And and uh, so it stopped. And then, of course, we hit this wave again. We came in, came back out. But so I say this to say that, uh, you know, I think the most misunderstood piece of that is that uh, there's always a small group that you know that that gets the larger voice uh, regardless of who they are it's made up of many different people genders ethnicities races it doesn't matter what it is your religious beliefs it just i think that people need to remember that law enforcement officers are human beings and uh yeah we make mistakes and there are some people just like any other corporation that there are people that probably slip through the cracks and shouldn't be here and people make critical errors critical mistakes um, but that's not to say that everybody is that way and that's uh that's one of our pieces not to not to drop a bomb with the ATL podcast but you know that's one of the beneficial pieces of that bridging the divide is as you bring to light all these individuals that have these critical incidents and you know and basically getting pushing past the stigma for not only the general public to see that hey these people are human beings but for the law enforcement officer themselves to remember I'm a human being you know, and I think that's something that's that's lost and forgotten. You know, we're supposed to be these perfect groomed robots that go out here and know every every law, you know, and can and, and recite them like that. You know, and, and that's not necessarily the case. I mean, uh, we no, I mean, you showing Johnny Five didn't show up for work, but you did. Right. So, I mean, we can't yeah. we can't depend on the robots, but you, <laughs> you all are certainly people. And having listened to the ATO podcast, I mean, hear, hearing the stories um, uh, of so many folks, whether it's Bob Owens, who's actually on the foundation, Dickey Foundation's mm-hmm. board or Misty or you or hearing all these stories. And the fact is, you, you all are you're still people. You're our heroes, but but you're people that that are having to face 
um, these incredibly hard situations and how, and, and you're helping people and dealing with people on a lot of times what may be the worst day of their life. And I think the other thing that's lost is I think a lot of times people fail to realize that human beings deal with their own, their own trials and tribulations and their own, uh, trauma. And, you know, you could have stuff, uh, people have things going on at home. And, and the thing that's lost a lot of times is a lot of these men and women, regardless of what profession they're in, in the, of the first responder world, they, they, they curb, they curb their, their home lives to take care of something here because they feel like this is priority because they care enough about the community. They care enough about their mission. They care enough about their fellow officer, their, their, their firefighter, whoever it may be. And, uh, and they, they think about that sometimes more than they think about their family, other than that gets lost in translation at times. But the point being is that, um, you know, they have their own issues they deal with and then they, pile these on top you know you call them on your worst day which could be their worst day does that mean they need to take off work no it's just that there's there's a different way of dealing with our problems and issues but it's just to remember that um that we as individuals you know as a first responder they they have a job and a duty and a task and they're going to do it because they signed up for that that's their sworn oath to do but they'll do it you know and shoulder their own problems first and take on yours immediately without any questions asked. Well, and you care a lot, you, you clearly care a lot and clearly have a passion for your job, but also caring about other officers and you're, you're a board member with Assist the Officer Foundation. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about that and how you got involved there and, and what they do. So <clears throat> I think that uh, for me, I just I just needed to do something else, right? Uh, when, I, when I left SWAT, I was, uh, I was able to look at my youngest daughter and look at her and think, man, I just lost a year and a half of her life. I don't remember, you know, I, I didn't get to do the same as I did with my older daughter. And uh, so when I left there, I, my perspectives in life had changed. You know, I was beat down physically uh, and uh, emotionally. And uh, so I was just ready for a break. And, and in taking that break, I, I learned a lot about myself and learned that, hey, there's there's other service work to be done out here. And so I needed something else to do. So I became just an advisor you know, through the ATO, which was just kind of help out here or there. And then uh, got to be a part of the Dallas Police Association, kind of helped the officers from that standpoint. Um, and then uh, and then eventually just became one of the directors with the ATO and very honored and humbled to take that position. And uh, my thing for that is, you know, when I leave here, most people want to leave and go do another law enforcement career. You know, I'm... Uh, I have a, a strong faith base that I, I truly believe that the Lord will guide me in the direction I'm intended to go. But I believe that I'm being guided in a direction for some other form of service work. And that may not be carrying a badge and gun. You know, that may be helping those who who are. You know, I have a lot of interest outside of this place, which is uh, with non nonprofit type stuff to help people combat the things that I've been through. Uh, that's why I get involved with uh, things like first up there in Frisco and, and, uh, you know, try and look at different avenues I can go through the rest of my life, you know, whether that be through the personal training and helping somebody overcome an injury or more confidence or getting people healthier or just helping pushing them in the right direction for mental health, you know, like get them going for that. And then also just give back to those that continuously give, because even though I'm a supervisor and supposed to be a leader for this police department, you know, I, I tell my guys, you know, they, it, it's, it's known and observed that I were a sergeant rank, right? So people work for me, but really I work for them. 
and uh, that's that's the truth. Sometimes people get a little bit sideways with it and we'll kind of gear back into the thing but i've been very fortunate with the people that i've supervised throughout my career as a supervisor that uh i've been able to work for them you know and that is providing whatever it is that they need whether that be time off with family or a class or what whatever it may be but at the same time just your fellow officer and just your fellow man in general uh just trying to help out with that so well, and that's really interesting. And kind of talking about the number of people that you've helped, whether it's through nonprofit work or with ATO and, and other organizations, who are two or three people who've really helped you to get where you are now? Um, yeah, I thought about that. I kind of thought you might ask me that. So <laughs> coming over here, I was like, man, I got to have a good answer for that. And the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, I can't narrow that down. There's different pieces of my life that's been directly influenced by another individual uh, and each person I've taken so much from people and they probably don't even know it. Actually, I probably owe money to, to some people because I've taken so many ideas and thoughts or what they <laughs> how they react to things. I'm like, man, I should probably like, that's pay, why, that's why you're not naming names. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I think, um, I think for me, you know, I grew up in a very structured home, so I was very fortunate, uh, to have a good family. My mother, unfortunately died in a car wreck, uh, my 10th day in the Dallas police Academy. Oh. So I've gone through a lot of this with just uh, my dad. Um, but I, through the years, I, I've been so fortunate and blessed. If I look back on it now, at the time, I probably didn't know it was a blessing, but uh, I am so blessed uh, to have been able to have the opportunities. Door, these doors open and there's always someone else there standing there to, to walk you through it, right? And it's just to name one person or a few people, I, I don't know that I could. It's just a conglomerate of so many different people that have contributed to my success today. You know, I. I you know, it's definitely not my doing. Um, I just kind of jumped on the coattails of another individual and another individual and just kind of learned and kind of morphed myself to to what I perceive or feel is is right. So, yeah, I hope well, that answers that question. <laughs> that was an artful way to not. That was, that was, that was a way to not answer. <laughs> it was. It was very <laughs> artful like that. So I, at the end of all of our interviews, I always I always turn it over to Dickie. So I've got to ask your favorite Dickie's meat and favorite Dickie's side. Ooh. So every time we came to Dickie's, which when you work at Southeast and you can come up here to, to the Dickie's right up here. Yeah, oh it's the original one right God, there at Knox and Central, great, 80 man. years. <laughs> Anytime you got a 50 up there, it was awesome. Uh, I would go with uh, chopped beef and sausage. Okay. And the side, I've thought about this too, and I'm going to have to say that I'll take that soft I'll take the soft serve as a side. Oh, any day we're taking ice cream as a side. I like that. I but, think that's creative. Yeah, but I always like the green beans for the bacon and all that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You've listened to this before, so you know we finish up with a lightning round. I'm going to give you two choices, and you're going to give me your favorite. We should start out with an easy one. Barbecue beans or jalapeno beans? I'm going to go with jalapeno beans. Sweet or unsweet tea? Sweet. Chopped brisket or sliced brisket? Chopped. Sauce or no sauce? Extra sauce. Brisket or pulled pork? Mm, man, I don't know. That just depends on what you're in the mood for. I think I'd take brisket, though. <laughs> and last but not least, ribs or wings? Ribs. All right. Well, we thank you so much. Uh, my guest today has been Dallas Police Department Sergeant Josh Hertel. Thank you so much for everything you. you do for our community. And thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning into the second part of my interview with Josh Hertel with the Dallas Police Department. Make sure to subscribe to Dickie's Doing Good wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episodes. Thanks for listening. If you want more information about the Dickey Foundation, feel free to visit thedickeyfoundation.org. And if you want more information about some of our great owners and the great stories they're doing, please visit dickies.com. We look forward to seeing you next week where we'll continue sharing the good stories of good people doing good things in our community.